You are listening to the Wildlife Photography Podcast with Rob Reed and Josh Galicki, bringing together the love of nature and photography. Episode 8, Digital Manipulation and its Role in Modern Photography. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Wildlife Photography Podcast with me, Rob Reed, and my co-host, Josh Galicki. Hi, Josh. How's it going? Good, Rob. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good, thanks. What what have you been up to recently? You know, not too much. I have some work being done at my place, so not a lot of photography, mostly just uh, processing images from last fall and last summer, but it's been uh, it's been a slow month or so, but I'm looking forward to spring. It'll be coming up here in a couple of weeks, and uh, can't wait for it. I'm looking forward to this discussion, too, because it's a really interesting topic, and not something I've heard a lot of people dive deep into and, and speak about. So I think this will yeah. be great. Yeah, well, it, it came about because I wrote an article for Birdwatching Magazine because I do a regular slot for them every month. And, and sometimes you know, it's a bit difficult to, to think about what to write about, or get, and at least write about something sort of new and, and interesting for everybody rather than regurgitating the same stuff every month. Um, and I came up with – I'd, I'd taken this – picture of a of a little grebe and it I, I don't know it it sort of spoke to me and said actually you know what I, what I did with that picture would make a really interesting article and start a conversation about digital manipulation and that sort of hot potato that everybody likes to sort of keep tossing up in the air and not holding on to <laughs> it's much. like ethics when we spoke about ethics yeah. if you go it's one of those things that people it's out there but people don't talk about as much it, exactly so i thought i'd i'd sort of uh, recount the story to everybody and the basis of the article and we could we could basically take the conversation from there so i hadn't been out photographing for uh well for ages and I, in fact i haven't really done much at all this year but i did get out after january was really really wet i mean it was just front after front coming across the uk ever since christmas so there was about three or four weeks where we you know we, there was just no chance to get out and photograph anything unless you want to do a project in the rain which is another thing that i've been thinking about actually um doing something a little different but finally the weather broke and we had some really cold nights with that sort of lovely clear mornings and that lovely mist that comes off you know the lakes and i love the water birds at this time of the year when that happens and you get this magical winter you know winter dawn and you get some epic light so i i thought right i'm going to get down to one of the local lakes and i'm going to get myself ease myself into my photography this year you know in a place i know and i know intimately and i know where the light comes up and i know you know the birds that are that are on that lake and the way they behave so I turned up and I found, you know, I must have been eight or nine little grebes that normally don't come that close to the bank. They're quite, you know, they're quite suspicious, uh, even though this is a, a place that's frequented by a lot of people. And a lot of the other species get so used to seeing people. They're very, very confiding. But little grebes, for some reason, just, you know, don't behave that way. But this particular morning, they were quite close. So I thought if I lie down on this, icy bank and freeze myself <laughs> for long enough i'll get an opportunity when the light comes up uh, and lights that mist to get some really nice sort of side and backlighting and there'll be some quite interesting stuff going on so anyway i lay there for about half an hour and get, I said, getting <laughs> pretty pretty cold and the dawn just didn't happen like i 
had anticipated it. We, we got this sort of thin bank of cloud, which came up from nowhere. And so I didn't get this dramatic light. I got this sort of more, more muted, you know, dawn light that came through. And I thought, right, okay, well, I could have to change my approach. So I thought, actually, I'll tell you what I'll do here then is I'll go for a high key uh, image rather than that dramatic light because it was, you know, it was quite soft, not not that bright, but it was quite soft, you know, um, soft lighting. And so I thought, right, okay. I, so I'm looking at the settings and I'm trying to balance the exposure to get it overexposed as you need to do in those situations, as you know. And quite often you're sort of, you know, maybe two stops over. I, I, looking at my my settings, I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm as wide open as I can go. I can't really, you know, compromise on the shutter speed too much. Otherwise, I'm going to introduce a bit of, you know, motion blur. And of course, with that, with a telephoto lens, you're just magnifying those things anyway. So you need 2,000th plus, really, of a second. And that meant by trying to dial in that overexposure, uh, my ISO settings were, were going to have to be on the cusp of, is this image really going to be that usable? So I'm thinking, well, really, maybe I'm better off cranking the ISO down a little bit, accepting that the, the image isn't going to be as overexposed as I want it to be, get a better RAW file, and then work with a RAW file in post, which is going to give me a better result than by cranking the ISO up and and getting a, a you know a, a, a more grainy, you know, uh, grainy RAW file. So that's basically what I did. So I created it in post now the idea that i had it would have been no different had i had enough light to do it in camera in a traditional sense but i had the idea in my head and i just produced it on the computer instead and then i got to thinking well you know the result is the same but is this i called the article art or deception is this art or do you feel that this you know i'm deceiving you by taking an image which basically wasn't what I saw with my eyes, wasn't what I recorded with the camera, and I've created it in post-production. So I just thought that was a kind of a good place to start because my own personal feeling on it is that I knew what I wanted to do. I just used the tools that I had at my disposal in the best possible way to get the best result. And to take a better RAW file, I thought, was going to give me that in a traditional sense. So that's basically where it all started. And I wrote an article about it. So I thought, now that's a really good topic for discussion because it, it you know, opens up all sorts of avenues. Yeah, Rob, I think, I think that's a very interesting story and the perspective on that. And it just goes to show that while you could have created some of those effects in camera, you were able to create those effects as part of the post-processing. And it ultimately comes down to, the, you know, from my perspective, and you look at the entire photography community in the wildlife space, there's really no right answer in terms of how much you should post-process, how much you shouldn't. Um, it's really up to the photographer. I mean, we're all each individually the artist, but it's very unique when it comes to post-processing. For some photographers, the image is what's captured in the field and that's the end of the process for others that may just be the beginning and you the outcome may be some sort of digital art where you know it's 20 percent in the field 80 percent on the computer or vice versa so it really it all depends what your vision is what the usage of it is and what you want to convey as the artist but uh what i think is so interesting about this topic and i the reason why 
um, I think people will find this discussion interesting is you can go in 5%, 10%, you can go in 100% on this. There's so many different variations on how you can use post-processing to change the expression of the image, um, emphasize certain things of the image. Um, it's, it, there's just a huge variety there and people look at it very differently. When it comes to fashion photography, food photography, digital manipulation or extreme post-processing is encouraged. It's part of, it's expected. Uh, when it comes to wildlife photography though, I think the wildlife photography community, it's a bit more fundamental. You have the extremes of, you know, well, whatever is captured in camera, that's it. That's what I saw. That's what the camera saw. And that's the end of it. No post-processing to, well, a raw is a flat file. I want to post-process and people who will spend hours on images to create, you know, a specific intended look. So there's a huge scale there. Um, and uh, not a lot of people, I think, when they're viewing images, if you don't have a trained eye, it's hard to determine what you're looking at in terms of, okay, was that, was that what the photographer saw in the field or is that what the photographer is trying to convey as a result of post-processing? So it's, it's a really interesting subject. Sorry if you can hear some grumbling in the background. I've got Sky sat on my lap. She's she's starting to she's starting to growl as she always wants to have a have a bark up at something or other. But so apologies if that if she that does came not across. like digital manipulation. No, she does not like digital manipulation. It, it wasn't my stomach anyway. I've, I've had lunch. No, and it's 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 I, people seem to be, or they certainly were in the past. They almost seem to be particularly with wildlife photography, wildlife photography, two camps, you know, that traditional, no, you can't change anything about the image. Otherwise, you know, you're misleading people to people that, <clears throat> that really embrace it. Uh, yeah. And when you're talking about sort of competition photography, you know, that there aren't, aren't really that many sort of gray areas with that. Uh, and the, and the, the, the rules are very strict and for, for good reason, it's not, I guess from a, a competition organizer's perspective, uh, as people obviously know that I am, it's not a question of you don't believe in the post you know, process. It's just a question of being able to control how far that goes. And, you, and to be able to do that, the rules need to be pretty tight. Personally, mm -hmm. I, you, know, it, you know, in my own... In my own photography, there are plenty of images where I've done things that would make them illegible for um, a competition because I've removed something or I've or I've done something, you know, like the high key story, for example, mm -hmm. that probably is pushing things a little far for most competitions. Because if you supply the raw file, you go, well, hang on a minute. That doesn't look anything like, yeah. you know, what, what you've actually produced. But if, if you did it in camera and you, you know, you bumped your ISO and you overexposed yeah. by three stops then your raw image would be more, you know, so it, it's, it's an interesting perspective. It is what's accepted and what's not. It is because the, the fact of the matter is either way, that particular image wasn't what I saw with my eyes mm -hmm. clearly because your eyes don't view things like that. I mean, your eyes are just you know, like, like an automatic exposure camera, aren't they? They'll just adjust for each, you know, each, yeah. uh, each situation and you can't adjust them. <laughs> in your mind to go, no, I want to see this in high key and you know, turn a little <laughs> dial and it all comes up, you know, through your optic nerve and, uh, and hits your brain. And, and there, there you have a high key image. It just doesn't work like that. So it's not, and, and same thing goes if you do it the other way around, you know, and, and you, you go low key, you don't see things like that. You, you no. don't see a lot of things in silhouette. 
Sometimes no, you it, do, but but not the way the camera would would portray it. You don't see things like bokeh with your eyes, yeah. you know, because you, the depth of field that your eyes will 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 grant you is so much better than you know a, a, a sort of fast lens. You know, and, and the dynamic lens. range in our eyes are better too. Yeah. I mean, how often do you have a bright sky and a dark foreground? You know, the, these camera sensors they've advanced, but they're nowhere still near the dynamic range. Of the human yeah. eye. So, so a camera is showing you things that you can't see with the human eye. So if the argument is, well, you know, that's not how you, how you saw it. I don't see how that really stacks up, you know, in terms of a, a digital manipulation point of view. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we were talking off air, weren't we, about sort of out of focus backgrounds and things like that. You know, so you, you know, you're talking about, you know, depth of field. I mean, there's no way that you could isolate a subject like a camera does with your own eye. So the camera yeah. is producing an image which you can't see. Other thing is, you take for example, you know, the movement of water. So you're capturing, you're um, freezing the movement of water. So you're capturing all these amazing water droplets. You know, it might be backlit by the sun, whatever. You're not going to see that with your own eyes, not in okay. the way that the camera captures it that that split second moment in time. And similarly, if you're photographing something like a waterfall. And you're, you know, using half a second, a second exposure, and the water's coming out on, you know, it looks like cotton wool. It's all nice and fluffy. You can't see that with a human eye either. So I, I think it's, it's interesting. You're right, and I think people like to see things that they don't normally see in real life, and maybe that's the appeal for post-processing. Water is a good yeah. example. Slow shutter speed. You have, you know, different textures, or you have a smoothing of the water. That's normally seen as pleasant or a super fast shutter speed where you see all the individual droplets when a heron's taking a fish out of the water. Both of those things are not typical to the experience of what you would, you know, you, you just don't see that when you're there. But yet those are the preferred ways of uh, portraying water in an image versus how we would see it, you know, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. Nobody wants to see water as they, so. Yeah, that's somewhere in between, isn't desire. it? <laughs> yeah, 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 it's maybe part of the desire for, yeah. what drives post-processing in a greater whole of things and how things are portrayed. People like to see things that they frankly just don't see. It looks different to them. It looks more either like a painting or just something that um, they're not used to seeing. And for whatever reason, the brain is more, it's more appealing for people. Interesting. You brought up painting there actually, because we, you know, we're talking about art, aren't we? And if we're talking about digital photography as art, which is what my article was, was was sort of aimed towards. If you were painting a scene and let's say you had a heron stood in shallow water fishing and it's got some distracting elements, you're not going to include those in your painting. So why would you not take them out or yeah. clone them out <clears throat> in post-processing to make that image more appealing? Where yeah. where's the deception? There, there's no deception there, really. I don't I don't feel you're just making a more appealing image, and isn't that what it's all about? It's about the visual stimulus mm -hmm. that you're you're giving the viewer. And you can do that even with a lens in in the field. A good example: I was actually kayaking, and it was a great blue heron, as a matter of fact, and it was fishing on the side of this uh, cove within the Chesapeake Bay, not far from my house. The background, you had all these loblolly pines and grasses, and um, so it was very busy. So I had a um, 200 millimeter f2 lens. So I shot it at f2. The heron was in focus, but it rendered because you had such a shallow depth of field, the softening 
the entire background, which looks quite pleasing. But again, it's not what I saw. Now, if I stop down to even you know f4 or you get down to f5 6 f8 with that lens you'd start to see more focus more busyness in the background and it's a choice now what a lot of photographers will do if they have that busyness they'll apply an orton effect or they'll soften the background but again i think it comes down to taste where you want to be artistic and you want to remove distractions but there's always a tendency and again this is personal taste this will vary there's always a tendency to go a little too far where the softening of the trees looks like it's a dreamy wonderland and you know it's all it, the diffusion kind of goes too far in my opinion to to a certain extent so um it's always how how far do you want to push that slider <laughs> well but it, we're, to... now we're getting to subjectivity aren't we because that's exactly. what art's all about isn't it i mean what you like is different to what i like and we see it in the judging mm-hmm. process all the time don't we that certain images will divide the crowd you know, comp- you know, and they are at polar opposites at times yeah. with pictures. I mean, I've I've been in situations where, you know, you put an image in front of two people, and one of them absolutely hates it <laughs> with a passion, and then the other will love it, and and I think that's one of the fantastic things about photography. Actually, I love those discussions much more than actually when we get together as a group of judges and we all go, yeah, that's the winner that's because the one, it's head yeah. and shoulder. That's the one because it <laughs> ticks so many boxes. There's, that's not an interesting discussion from my point of view. I like to, I like to sort of go into the nuances of each individual picture and why people believe that it's more appealing. I'm not going to say better because I don't, I don't believe that's the right thing to say, but more appealing mm. to them than, than another image. So I yeah. think it's, you know, I, th- I think it's, it, the way people look at things, um, and the way they look at them so differently, I, I just think is so interesting. And it says a lot about, you know, the human psyche, mm-hmm. you know, I think. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about digital manipulation, I guess it's, it's, it's another extension of that because it's what people find acceptable and what they don't, what they're happy with doing and what they're not happy with doing. And you also think that to some degree, people are almost a little frightened of going too far with it sometimes. And I'm frightened of experimenting. Yeah. I, I think so. A lot of photographers, and I, I speak to them all the time, they can be intimidated by digital manipulation because there's so many tools now. There's so many filters. I mean, even in my workflow, so I'm a Canon shooter. I use their um, digital photo processor. They have a raw converter. I'll use that to convert my raw, but there's, I'll make adjustments. I may adjust the brightness and pre-sharpening, pre-noise, and there's certain things I'll do. I adjust, then I go to... Uh, Photoshop, I have, you know, there's layers, I'll work on layers and then I'll use camera raw for some of the sliders. Then there's the Nick effects filters that, you know, so I go yeah. through my own processing thing. And after you do it for so long, there's, you know, Topaz comes out and there's all these different new filters and new ways of doing things. It can be overwhelming because there's an unlimited amount of variables there. I think for a lot of people, they look at all these steps and it's just like, oh, this is too much. I just want to let me shoot in JPEG the hell with it, you know, but I think yeah. it's important for photographers. And and this, I think, comes through experience and over time to hone their craft to figure out what's really important, because when it all shakes down, no matter all these filters, Photoshop, camera, raw, Lightroom, whatever you're using, to me, it ultimately comes down to a few basic concepts to include, you know, you look at um, how you process color how you handle tint, hue, saturation, um, light and shadow, luminosity. 
uh, contrast, uh, noise reduction, some sharpening. You know, you look at that, these are the main functions that you want uh, and you want to get a good grasp of. All the other stuff kind of falls into place, but that's essentially what I focus on, at least from my standpoint. And I think if you if you don't lose the big picture and you focus on these things, then it's more easier to go down a rabbit hole and look for certain tools to help refine that process. But yeah. I know a lot of photographers, they're intimidated by this because, you know, they think about it more from the amount of tools that are available versus the fundamentals of what, what should, in my opinion, be applied to make an image stand out. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, the more controls that we have and the more options that we're given, the more that we tend to feel that we, we need to use them. Yeah. That's what I feel when I go into Lightroom, for example, and, and yeah. you know, the new update comes out and they've got this new, you know, tool and this new slide. You go, oh, I can start playing with that. Oh, great. And then, you know, before you know it, your workflow is, is gone from, well, I'll take five minutes on an image and I'll do some basic stuff through to, hang on, it's taken me half an hour and now I've got to get into Photoshop and I can do this, that and the other. And it's perhaps sort of less is more at times. And I think I for as far as I'm concerned, for the vast, vast majority of the images I take, I don't want to spend too much long, too, too long in post. So I actually don't want to alter, you know, the original file too much. I just want to do the normal tweaks that enhance the raw file because a raw file is like a negative, you know, and it, yeah. you know, most people listening to this will know that you need to process that raw file because it's just basic information. It's and if you're playing, yeah, if you're playing around with, as you're saying, with contrast, with color, with hue, with sharpening, with all these bits and pieces, they're the basics, you know, yeah. and those are the things that, you know, you should be getting the most out of that file with. It's when, I don't know, if somebody produces something which doesn't look like the real world and it's unintentional, it's kind of an unintentional byproduct of what they've been doing, uh, you know, globally with their image, then I think that's that's a real shame, you know, yeah. and that's where they are not understanding correctly what the software will do for them. And the classic, classic example of this is uh, when people just take the saturation slider and globally they just enhance the colors. So yeah. they're enhancing everything. And it's uh, nuclear. <laughs> yeah, it, it becomes nuclear. And if you've got something where the white balance is different in different parts of the image, particularly when you've got something that's in sunlight in part, and then part of it's in shade, like a bird, for example, with mm. so it's being side lit and it's a water bird, a classic thing, you know, it's photograph water birds. Quite often you take the saturation slider and you'll slide it and you'll get some nice, those warm tones are really starting to pop and you go, great. And then you look at it, but hang on a minute, all those blue cool tones are also starting to come out mm. and it doesn't look, doesn't look real anymore because that, that contrast is, is not something that you will see because your eye adjusts for it. Yeah. So to do these things globally, you're making a huge mistake. And I see that all the time. And, and we've, we've had that conversation about, you know, various images oh, uh, yeah. you know, over the years. I, I think everything to a certain extent is subjective, but there's one thing that I, in my opinion, is not subjective. And I would disagree with is if you have a raw file, it's a flat file, you should post-process it. There, there, there's a small portion, I think, uh, in the wildlife photography community where they feel that whatever is captured in the field, whatever is on that camera, that's it. It should stay there. 
well then don't shoot raw shoot jpeg and then just you know put it out but it is a flat file and it should be in my opinion post-process that's the whole point of it um but you're right rob i think there's so many things from my standpoint subjectively that it's just overdone or it's done and it just in my opinion does not look pleasing saturation is definitely one of them uh i think the other that comes to mind there's a few actually i was thinking about this a little bit before we started talking uh i call it the uh the the uh light from heaven effect i don't know if you've seen this but you know there'll be a portrait of an animal and uh they put in a radio filter and you bring in the fake sunlight, you'll brighten and warm and put this glow or this yeah. beam on the animal's face. And then the contrast is reduced everywhere. And it just, it looks so fake to me, but that could, it's, it's pleasing to a certain extent. And they're very popular. You'll see this on social media. It's gotten very, very big in the wildlife photography community, but it just, doesn't reflect reality because uh you know the the light source in and of itself is fake and the contrast is taken away and the the only place you'll find contrast will be like on the eye of the animal or maybe a certain part mm. of the face but that seems to be a a huge trend now and i look at it and it's like oh it was interesting when i first saw it but the more i see it it's and what what goes hand in hand with this is the animal is brightened and it's normally a shot where, you know, the sun's probably a little brighter or, you know, maybe it's a lion on a road in Kruger National Park and, you know, there's dirt on the road and there's busy. So the animals brighten and everything else is darkened. So not only do you have some of that light, but it looks like the animal was stuck in. It looks like a sticker. You have like a dark scene yeah. and you have this bright animal and you put the sticker in there. Um, again, it could, it, it's pleasing for a lot of people to look at, but I look at it and I say, okay, that's, in my from my perspective i just think it's too much yeah and when you when you can produce those things in camera they're so much more natural and so much more pleasing than when you have to produce it yeah in post processing you don't have the these... right lighting conditions in camera and then you try to yeah exactly because it, it will look false because it is false it's not reality whereas we all know that Okay, you get something where there are high, you've got high contrasting tones in the image. It might be there's a certain bit of side lighting or there's a shaft of light coming in or whatever. You know, when you take that raw file, you want to, you know, you want to basically capture as much detail as you can at either end of that sort of contrast spectrum, if for want of a better phrase. And then you can deal with where you want to put the emphasis in post. I don't see any problem with that at all. If you've taken something which is relatively flat lighting, so you know you haven't got those high degrees of contrast, and then you're trying to apply an effect with digital post-processing, that's when the kind of wheels fall off the cart for me. Yeah. And it just it just doesn't work. Or I don't I don't find that pleasing. I would do something else with that image. I would make it black and white. I would, mm -hmm. you know. I, I don't know. It depends. You know, every 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 situation is 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 different, and I, I guess there is nothing wrong with doing whatever you want. I think with with digital photography, and there's nothing wrong with taking in camera JPEGs and doing nothing with them whatsoever. You know, if that's if that's what you want to do, if you want to take a file and you want to, you know, strip everything out. If you want to take it, uh, you know, cut the animal out and put it on a new background, which I've seen many many people do, and I've done it. I, you know, and I've done it myself. If I'm producing an image that I want for uh, illustrative purposes and I want to put it in a book or whatever, I have taken 
birds, mammals, whatever, and I've cut them out and I've put them in different situations because it's just a more pleasing image and it's better to illustrate what I'm trying to illustrate in the magazine article or the book. But generally, if it's a magazine, I'll tell people what I've done because I think that's mm -hmm. more immediate. With a book, it doesn't really matter. It's an, it's an illustrative thing as long as it's not a book on how to take, you know, wildlife photography how to take this particular animal in this particular setting and you're you're completely misleading people but yeah so you know i've done there's nothing wrong with it i just think that you in a situation where you need to be honest let's say or need to then then i think you need to say what you've done yeah yeah i i, I totally agree and i think when it comes to post-processing or digital manipulation to me the most important thing a photographer can do when it comes to wildlife photography and maybe any type of photography i'll go as far to say is dodging and burning where you want to increase luminosity where you want to darken shadows um, how you lead your viewers audience or how you lead your own audience to the image and where do you want the attention to fall how do you want it to get to your subject or what do you want to emphasize in that in that image because you have a raw flat file sometimes if the lighting is great and you have that contrast in uh, in situation, it's, it's, it's not easy to, it's easy to do. I should say you make a few adjustments and it's already there, but in most cases you do have a little bit of a flatness where a little bit of dodging, a little bit of burning, maybe a subtle vignette, how you lead the viewer into the scene and how you want the viewer to interpret and land on the subject. That to me, it, it's the most powerful, most powerful thing you can do when it comes to digital manipulation that, that I think trumps uh saturation trumps all these other different types of things gaussian blur and all these other um effects that can be applied if you know that and, and even more so than sharpness and noise reduction that's that's important but not to that level um and i think once once you can master that i think that's everything else kind of comes together after that that to me is the most important thing yeah i think subtlety is a really good word actually yeah. when it comes to digital manipulation and and to have that in the back of your mind when you're going through those sort of, you know, the, those processes, you know, the more subtle you can be with the touch and the more light touch, you, you, you know, I, I think the better the result at the end of the day. If you have to be really heavy handed with something, then it can create something that just doesn't look real or there's just, it's just something, you know, when you look at it, there's just something artificial about it. I think that's, <laughs> yeah. the, that's what I'm trying to get to. And, and one of the things that, frustrates me more than anything i think is is the overuse of noise reduction and sharpening and the two combined can annihilate a really really good image because people yeah. don't understand what they're doing when they're when they're using these tools they just think that oh, i've got to sharpen it you know and i, I and the, the sharper it is the better it will look well you've what you need to understand about sharpening is that it needs to be sharpened for the you know, for the application you're wanting to use it for. Yeah. So if you're sharpening for a book, for example, and you're going to have it in print, it's a whole different process to sharpening for social media. You're it's right. a whole different process. And, and the combination of denoising and sharpening, certainly up until we had Topaz, <laughs> um, <laughs> was a whole literally can of worms. And it, it did used to create these these sort of artifacts that did look like wiggly worms to me sometimes when somebody <laughs> would would denoise something and then they would sharpen it and then you get all these artifacts in particularly things like blue sky that would really come out so if you've taken something at a higher iso level for example and you've got a bit of noise yeah. 
then you've denoised it and then you've then you've sharpened it you get these artifacts coming out and it, you, i can spot yeah. them a mile away and you just think have you not looked at this picture and what you've done to it <laughs> the original file was probably much much better why, why have you why have you ruined your own image and um yeah it's so it's understanding i think the the software and what it does and you know how it will affect the picture and the application to which you want to put it yeah i i think is yeah. is is a, is a you know is a real skill and subtlety is the key I, so I many really people are against grain or they want to remove all grain i like grain actually a little grain never hurt anybody right i mean maybe we should put that on a t-shirt but <laughs> grain, <laughs> grain, isn't a, grain isn't a bad thing and uh, there's this push um over the years to you know a lot of somebody uses this term it always sticks with me silky smooth you want that background to be silky smooth silky smooth well not really uh because when you go silky smooth on the background or everywhere else and you over sharpen um, the subject. So the two things that I see that are, you know, no nos from my standpoint, the noise reduction being too heavy handed, trying to get all grain out and have it be silky smooth. That leads to artifacts and banding and all all other things. And sharpening your subject or selectively sharpening whatever your subject is in the image to the point where you're assuming someone's going to take their laptop and bring it about an inch from their eyes and look and really close to see if everything is sharp. I wouldn't be able to get that close these days. Not with my eyesight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, nobody views it that way. Right. So if you're sharpening for the web, obviously it's different than sharpening for like a large scale print that would be hanging on a wall. You have to consider your audience, how many feet away are they going to be in all, all that, all that. And there's a, there's an art to that, but that being said, um, no one takes an image and holds it up to their eyes and goes with a, a magnifying glass through that. I mean, you should sharpen to taste and understand how your audience is going to view that. So over sharpening and too much noise reduction there, you know, it, it really can make a really great image, a not so great image. Well, uh, you say nobody goes up with a magnifying glass. I'll tell you a little story, actually. <laughs> pixel peep, I guess, is the, uh, the term. Well, right? I, I, I have in the past done a few portrait shoots for people you know, just to earn a bit of extra cash. And I remember the, I think it was, must've been the first one I ever did. I provided some prints and oh, we're talking about probably 12 or 13, maybe 15 years ago now. And I remembered taking them round to these people and one, one of them got a magnifying glass out, got the prints out and literally did do exactly what you're describing. Nobody does. He went through and he looked at it in, you know, in, in real granular fashion wow. and uh, well, he was happy. So I must've done something right, I guess, but yeah, it did happen to me that. <laughs> mm. Maybe they were just concerned that the nose hairs wouldn't show up in the, uh... <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm, I'm saying nothing. <laughs> that's when the clone tool really comes in handy actually yeah but Speaking, isn't that isn't yeah. that funny talking about portraits great segue and, and, <laughs> yeah put talking about portraits and when you look at what goes on in that industry and how people apply techniques to give people silky smooth skin with no blemishes no mm. no acne no no nothing <laughs> and you know get rid of all those sort of or reduce the effect of those aging lines that you know i've certainly got now <laughs> <laughs> you know you're, you're not creating reality there you're you're it's a representation of that person and everybody knows and can recognize that person instantly 
but you're almost giving it a digital makeup, aren't you? You're almost applying that digital makeup and it's not reflecting reality. But of course, if we want portrait of ourselves, we all want to look good, don't we? I mean, it's just, it's, true. it's natural. Maybe we're not doing the animals justice, you know? I mean, maybe the birds and, you know, the lion, you know, maybe uh, they would want a better touch up. <laughs> yeah. So hang on a minute. No, no, no. Where's the, where's the post-processing here, pal? Yeah. Take that scar <laughs> away from my face. Yeah, exactly. Fix my mane up a little bit, right? What do you think? Mind you, I have to say, some, <laughs> some of the horrors I've seen, maybe the animals would come in and go, look, dude, what are you doing to me? I'm not that color. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, my feathers don't look that sharp. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> no, it's true. Anyway, it's true. <laughs> going off piste a bit. <laughs> oh, dear. But it's a complete, so, you're right. It's a completely different perspective when it comes to, you know, portraits for people versus how we portray animals. We want detail. You want to emphasize those blemishes. You know, if it's a lion, how many how many portraits have we seen of a tight face of a lion with the mane if it has blood or a scar people want that right so it's, yeah. it's a it's a different outlook they want that granular detail don't they they yeah. you know they want that emphasized because it's character and mm -hmm. i think it's drawing attention and uh, you know this is what i mean we've always got to think about what is the point we're trying to make when we're taking an image you know what's you know what is that picture that we're trying to get across to people and I think when when you've got that in your mind and going back to my little grebes, having the way you want to portray that scene in your mind as you're taking the image, regardless of how you've taken it and whether it's done in camera or post-processing, maybe that's that's the skill, I think, rather than taking an image and going, oh, I could do this, that or the other with it to improve that. I think if yeah. you've already got in your mind what you want to achieve, I think that's you know that's a much better place to to be and to start with than than just taking something and deciding that the latest filter will be good on that and we'll try it out and see what happens and oh i can make a silk purse out of a sow's ear yeah, yeah and i think right. that's probably the problem with with half of these things is that that's what people are trying to do and i think the more you get right in camera in the field i think the easier it is to make those decisions because if you know you have the light or you had that situation and you're closer to where you want to be with your raw file i think it's easier to make those decisions that said it's i find i'm more heavy-handed when it comes to processing something where uh a good example backlight if you have an image where you have strong backlighting um you know there's very little contrast the animal's super flat um you may have bokeh or some things you want to emphasize but I would apply a lot more contrast in an image that was backlit than an image that was side lit, for instance, where you have that natural contrast. So a lot of it has to do with the situations in the field and what you want to be able to convey. But I find if you have a backlit image, you're probably going to process that more. You're going to change the color a little bit more. You're going to add contrast because just those things weren't there. They weren't present in the raw file versus. An image yeah, because the camera will see it differently. When, when, yeah. I mean, talking about sort of color temperature, for example, you know, our eyes will adjust for that, but a camera doesn't, yeah. it, it, you know, it's, it's a kind of a binary thing with a camera, isn't it? It's, you know, this, this is how it is. You've got it on a, you know, on whatever setting, you, you know, um, white balance setting you've got it on. So it's going to render, going back to my example of earlier, you know, things in shadow with a different color tint to things that are being lit by the sun. If you've got both of those things in the, in the frame, rather than, not, and our eyes will naturally adjust to that. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if you do this in the field. I mean, historically, Rob, for years, I've always shot an auto white balance, and then I would just adjust to taste and post, right? Lately, I've been changing that. So if it's cloudy, I'll go to cloudy white balance Maybe, or, yeah. you know, and I really like the results better. Um, I'm starting with a file that's closer to where I want to be or, you know, just again, it's to taste, but um, I'm, I'm starting to actually adjust my white balance in the field. Whereas years ago, I never did. I just auto white balance and then I would adjust it to taste. And when it comes to taste, I found, and I, I would say this isn't even an opinion. It's a fact. Most wildlife photographers, it's all about the yellows and the reds and the warmth. Most people gravitate to warming an image. I like cooler tones. I think you do too. We might be in yeah, the minority yeah. on this. Yeah, I, I, I do. <laughs> the funny thing is that we had this discussion, I think we were talking about social media, that people do gravitate to warmer tones. And if you put something on that's, um, you know, it might be backlit mist, early morning backlit mist, and you can really get those sort of, you know, oranges and things really going in 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 those images. They do much better yeah. on social media than if you do something with cooler tones. Definitely, mm -hmm. because it just it's just visually more appealing for some reason. Yeah, I, I can guarantee I'll get double the likes on a warm toned image than I will on a cooler toned image. Yeah, I, I, there I, are a few exceptions, but generally speaking. And maybe I think it's how people see color. Maybe like red. I think red is more associated with energy and power. Blue is more associated with calm, you know, blue skies, water. And I think it's just kind of how our brains interpret those colors. I mean, I'm getting very philosophical, but that's kind of how I say it to myself. And, and I think it can be overdone too. We're talking about certain things that are overdone. I've seen a lot of great images, uh, snowy images, images in winter, you know, whether it's Finland or, you know, stuff in the Antarctic. And the photographers are actually warming these images where, and you don't, it might, from my standpoint, if you have snow and you don't want to warm that, to me, that's a cooler tone, but they warm it and it just doesn't look natural when you have these, these warmer tones and these tints on snow. It just, it's, they're, yeah, they're and the I, I think there. that's, that's a, that comes down to a problem we were, we were talking about earlier and it's, it's sort of applying a global yeah. effect to an image. Whereas if you, if you've got snow, okay, so say you've got a mountain hair, for example, in snow that's transitioning into, you know, summer. I've got to, I want to say plumage there, but it's <laughs> not a bird, you idiot. Uh, but you know what I mean? So it's transi transitioning yeah. into its summer form. And you, you've got those sort of browner tones coming into the animal. You want to enhance the warmth of those tones. And I get that. But if you, if you do it globally, then, as you're saying, you're introducing the warmer tones into the snow, which is not what you want to do. So personally, I would be doing that you know, I would be doing that via a layer and I'd just be picking yeah. out, you know, the, the you know, the, the animal and subtly in enhancing those warmer tones rather than doing it globally. If you do something global where you've got a wide variety of tones, wide variety of white balance, uh, contrast and, and those sorts of elements, then you are going to do something destructive to your image and something that you hadn't intended. Yeah, so I, you, I agree. Yeah. I, I do the same to what you were saying, uh, uh, shooting on the water. I shoot on the water a lot now. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll warm the sky because you have a setting sun or whatever. Yeah. But in the foreground, there's, well, it's blue water. Uh, so I won't adjust the uh, white balance. It'll only be, it'll be selective for the sky, not necessarily the water to keep 
a little bit of that coolness in the water and it works well. You could do a gradient filter up and down either way, but uh, yeah. yeah. And, and we're not, we're not talking about, you know, turning the saturation slider up to 11 here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're talking about doing it subtly, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you, you know, it's just a little tweak. And I think, you know, this is, this is the real skill when you, when it comes to uh, what I would say, the sort of standard processing that we as photographers do to get the best out of an image as opposed to you know the complete other end of the scale where we're we're taking something and almost dismantling it and putting it back together again you know in the digital darkroom subtlety is so important like you say i mean i i have a a rule if i make any adjustments normally i'll take the opacity and i'll bring it down to 50 percent of what i've adjusted and that normally turns yeah. out turns out that, well that's a really good trick you know yeah. always do it in a layer <laughs> and then and then do yeah I, I do that myself and then and then go oh hang on a minute and you put it back to 100 you go oh i think i've overdone that yeah and, and the <laughs> other the other trick i do and it works so well and again this just comes to patience um you know years ago i'd want to oh i really like this image i need to get it i need to process it i want to post it on social media i want everybody to see yeah. it there's no reason to rush i what i'll do now is i'll process an image and i'll let it sit for a day and I'll walk away and I'll come back with fresh eyes. I can't think of a time when I came back and I didn't make a few tweaks or adjustments or make that image better. I've never been in a situation where I went through a quick process. I saved it and it was the best, you know, I let it for a day, come back with fresh eyes. You'll always appreciate yourself because mm. you're going to come out with a better image. Yeah. There was, I can't remember who I was talking to, whether I saw an interview or whatever, but there was a, um, uh, photographer that basically the system that they had was that they would go out on a shoot and then they wouldn't even look at the memory card they take the memory card out they put it on the desk they label it up and they'd let it sit because they they basically said the adrenaline that you have when you get back from some of these shoots is that you want to immediately look at your images yeah and it's potentially going to affect the way that you process them it's better to let it sit for a week and then go back to it when all that adrenaline's out of your system and you can look at it more objectively less and emotion I, yeah and I, and I actually think that is a really good piece of advice not something i follow myself <laughs> <laughs> so i can't i've got to get it out of the car and have a have a look at what i've taken but i actually think that is quite inspired yeah I think that's that's a great idea and because a lot of photographers me included you bring emotion into certain images if you know i'm in a floating blind or i waited for hours and hours and i was finally able to get what i wanted for instance or i go to a camera trap and i've had this thing set up and i finally got something there's much more emotion there versus um i was walking in the park and i you know came across something and i took a snap and boy that snap might be nicer and actually better objectively than the image you worked so hard for had an emotion attached to and putting a memory card down and coming back to it after a week, two weeks or whatever, it helps remove, it, it distances you from the feelings. And I think that's yeah. a good thing. And a lot of people fall into that trap when it comes to photography competitions. I have, uh, I'll submit images in the contest that I'm really emotionally attached to, but objectively they're probably not as good as some other images that don't have that same sentimental feeling so you really yeah. need to be objective as much as you can be since it's your own work which is why i think sometimes people are successful with images that they hadn't intended to enter but had a few you know entries left over so oh, i might as well 
you know, bung bung those in because they're not bad. Yeah. And and yeah. and then they turn out to be the ones that are, are winners yeah. or get they get awarded with. And that situation has happened to me. Well, not me personally entering competitions, but looking at um entrance and judging and uh, you know organizing competitions that's happened quite a few times when i've had photographers say to me well the funny thing is <laughs> that that was just a that was making the numbers up that image yeah it's it, it's happened to me before too it, it's um it's interesting and you know i've submitted images in the past a, a good example of uh, i had this image of a snowy owl on um a statue at union station of archimedes and it's it's on top of the head i remember it. that i've seen yeah. it yeah yeah and i yeah. and i processed it as soon as i don't know maybe a week or a couple of days after was that you did you you entered that into bird photographer didn't you um did i, I think you one? did i think you did yeah i no, certainly I remember it uh, well maybe not but maybe i i, I did enter that in um something else uh but i did i did it last year and I'm like, hmm, this, this image doesn't look right. So I went back to the raw image. This is just recently, a couple of weeks ago. And I cropped it and I cut off the statue. And I'm like, well, what am I doing? And I looked and I had the whole statue. So I, was, I, I put in a new crop. It was almost full frame where you have, you know, the base pedestal, the statue from the foot all the way up. And there's a wheel there, which is part of the whole Archimedes thing. Um, and it looks a million times better. And again, I'm looking at this image removed one year from when I took it. Mm. and I reprocessed it and it looks just a lot better. And again, to what you were saying, Rob, uh, give it some time, give it an objective look or step away and come back and you'll never be disappointed with those results. Yeah. I think even I, I remember listening to an interview with Andy Parkinson and he said that he'd been, I think through lockdown, he'd been going back through some old images where, you know, cause obviously he does a lot of traveling and a lot of tour leading and that sort of thing. And he was saying that he was going back through some old images and looking at the way he'd processed them first time around and going, oh, God, I could do that so much better now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it just goes to show that you know, I think mood does play a heavy hand in this at the time when you're when you're processing an image. And I've had this discussion with with Victoria Hillman as well, who will process images and images that have got cool tones or warm tones or happy feels or, you know, a happy feel to them or a sort of more melancholic feel to them based on the mood that she's in. And I actually think that that might have something to do with the way you process an image at the time anyway, because mm -hmm. if you're in a happy mood, maybe you're boosting the, you know, the warmer colors, the warmer tones. If you're in a, you know, if you're slightly more grumpy, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe it's the you're, you're looking at the cooler tones. So yeah. actually, I think when you go back and you process the same image twice from the raw file, I think you'll get a different result every time. Yeah, and, and it's, I think it's true for any type of art. Music is a perfect example of that. We talk about music. I mean, some of the artists that we've listened to over the years, you know, when there's a, you know, bad things happen in their life, it's a real downer of an album, but it's a powerful album yeah. or there's a, yeah. So you're right. It, uh, or, um, you're, they're taking, um, they're taking some drug or other <laughs> <laughs> Sergeant pepper. <laughs> yeah. 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 The Beatles, right. There's a good example. Yeah. Of, it uh, is a good know. example of, of how you need is love versus, uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. How, how sort of mood can change output, mm -hmm. artistic output. I think that's, uh, you know, and I do the same when I'm writing, you know, if I'm feeling, if I'm feeling agitated or, you know, then, then the writing is more angular, it's more aggressive. Whereas if I, if I'm in a calm place, then it's, it's much more poetic 
So I, you know, I see that coming out because I do quite a lot of writing, as you know. And uh, yeah, it's it, it's the same thing. It's that artistic side of your your brain. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, yeah, definitely. I but, agree. But I, I I just think that the way things have advanced, we can see that it's it's quite a binary thing when we look at the equipment that we use. We can see how that is is and we we had this discussion over mirrorless and DSLR and how how that sort of technology is moving forward. But we tend to forget that it is the same with the digital software that we use. You know, and they're, they're, we're talking about extra filters and this, that, and the other, but it is a little more basic than that at times. But the way that that software is also advancing, it's meaning that we can do things that, you know, we we never dreamt were possible, you know, only 10 years ago. So it Guy does, it does, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it does open up, it does open up a whole host of opportunities. It's, I just think it's how you, how you use them. And if you're using them in a way that you're creating the art that you want, I don't see an issue with that, you know, because we, we're not talking about competition photography here. We all know the limitations of competition photography and the reasons why that that can't really ever change because it's it's just so difficult to police can, can i give yeah. you one opinion though when it comes to competition photography all people will probably disagree with me but i do wish contests and i'm just speaking globally here um not wild art per se but i wish competitions we're able to relax the absolute no cloning rule with the exception of dust spots, because there's always mm. a little branch or a little thing that probably represents one to 2% of the frame, maybe even something smaller than that, that I think can be cloned out. I have no problem cloning small things out that really make the mm. image better. And normally it's working around the edges, right? You know, you're sometimes limited in your composition where you have your subject or whatever your photo is. And you're working around the edges and there's some things that are distracting. What most people will do, because they can't clone, they'll either dodge or burn it in or out, or they'll add a heavy vignette or a whitening vignette to kind of yeah. distract from it. But I wish the rules were a little looser on cloning. When it comes to my own images outside of contests, I have no problem if something's distracting to take it out because, you know, it's just... Well, me me too. And and uh, But I'll tell you what the problem with with... The cloning. How do you draw is, the line? I, I, exactly. I mean, yeah. I absolutely 100% agree with you. And if there were an easy way which you could make it a black and white process where there's this there's this clear line that is either stepped over or it's not, then I, I would I would welcome it. But the problem becomes is 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 how do you draw that line and then mm. how do you police it and and that's what makes it so difficult and that's why I think competitions, including wild art, step away from it because it's it makes it easier to deal with it because yeah. it, what do you say oh you can only do up to five percent of the frame, am I going to sit there and then <laughs> go go and work out if that rule has been flouted by 0.1 of a percent or not, <laughs> and then am I going to turn around to the top? Oh, no, it's 5.1%. So <laughs> see, you see the what ruler we, on the... Uh... <laughs> exactly. So therein lies the problem, yeah, yeah. you know, and you're creating a lot of work for yourself and a lot, and, and then you're opening up a whole debate with, you know, with virtually everybody that enters that competition oh, yeah. that it, oh, it's just so difficult. 
you know, I, I wish there were an easy answer to that because I, I'm, I'm, I'm completely in your camp with this. Yeah. I, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, again, not wild our other contests, but I've seen some of the winners recently on things. And I say to myself, there's no way the digital manipulation is not extensive on some of these images. So I often wonder too, you know, it would be interesting to kind of go behind the screen on some of these things and see, because, you know, the raw file is always requested if something's shortlisted or whatever, yeah. how much scrutiny is given to a raw file versus the produced image. And again, that's taste, right? Or it's there's subjectivity there and that varies. But I still see a lot of images where I'm thinking, boy, I'd love to see the yeah, raw image. You know, it, it's such a difficult thing because, yeah. you know, when you're, when the, when you're slightly ambiguous about things, so, and digital manipulation opens up that ambiguous can of, <laughs> can of worms, or yes. well, the, 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 the can of ambiguity, <laughs> we say. You know, how much dodging and burning is too much dodging and burning? How much saturation enhancement is too much saturation? I mean, it's, it's yeah. subjective. Yeah. And you can't, you can't put, a, you know, a red line down somewhere and say, right, you know, you step over that and you're out, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's so, so difficult. I think my attitude towards this is that um, if somebody has taken an image and then is completely misrepresenting the raw file, then that's when the line's been crossed. You know, you know, when it's not down to photographic skill, or there's more there's more post processing skill gone into that image than photographic skill, and post processing is a skill we all know that. But yeah. you know, and a photography competition is about photography, not about post processing. And I think that's that's the difference between what we what we can discuss and what we can what we allow ourselves to do as photographers to create the pieces of art that we want, and then a photography competition because. You know, I mean, wild art's more of an, a photography and art competition. But again, it's it's just so, so difficult to create a set of um, guidelines uh, because that's what rules are. They're guidelines yep. for people to stick to that will allow an element of that to come in without it then becoming a... You know, a, a sort of software skill as opposed to a, a hardware skill, which is what mm -hmm. we're talking about with with uh, you know, and, and a field craft skill, which is what we're talking about with wildlife photography. And it's just it's such a such a difficult line, you know, particularly with with a competition which is aimed at encouraging artistic photography because it is going to suggest that you can do a little more with post processing, which is you know, yeah, you know, yeah, which is where it's aimed. It is a tough thing, yeah. But, um, you know, we can, I tell you there, as I said, right at the start, there are people that will take absolute polar, you know, opposite positions with what they accept and what they don't find acceptable in terms of digital manipulation. And yeah. there are those that it's out of the camera and nothing else. You can't do anything to it. And then there are others that are at the polar opposite, as I said. So it's, it's a really interesting debate and not one that we, we, you know, hear people having too often. So I'm, I'm really glad we've been able to, to, to sort of sit and talk about it. But yeah. I also feel that as we go on and the technology improves, it's a bit like the, do you remember the debate about digital versus film 
when you go back 15 years and people say, no, 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 you know, you're no, you know, it'll never take over from film. I still shoot film. It's the traditional way. And, and then those voices got quieter and quieter and quieter. And for the last 10 years, I haven't heard that at all. (laughs) And I kind of think that post-processing is going down a similar route that there are, you know, as I said before, there are those that, will take things straight out of the camera and won't allow anything or to happen to them. But their their voices are becoming quieter, I think. And people are more accepting of, you know, the, the digital processing process. And I think a lot of it has to do with people, I think, are starting to settle down and they're pulling back on the sliders a little bit. HDR comes to mind. You, you, yeah. you know, years ago when that software came out and there were a couple different types of, you know, I, you know, Photoshop has and other, there's other filters for HDR, but these things would look like crap and they would be so fake. It looked like there was glowing and, you know, you'd have all these things. And I think that left a lot of people in the wildlife photography space is like, this is too, you know, no too much you know and and by the way it did look like crap so they were right about that in my opinion but yeah it did i've I've got a book on it actually and most of those pictures look like crap (laughs) and i think i think it it turned a lot of people off and i think that set the standard but i think yeah as we're progressing people are getting better on how to properly do hdr i mean look at multi uh, multi exposure in camera that's a big thing right now taking multiple images in camera and art but that's a way i think to be artistic with the hardware versus the software right so there's there's different ways of doing it but i think people are becoming i think they're going more to the side of being more subtle and having things look more realistic or they're toning down and i think there's a more welcoming of it uh in the community as a result of that because initially when some of these tools first came out it was just like what is this (laughs) it's like a kid in a candy store isn't it it's like (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna be everything 100 100 100 exactly. boom yeah i know and, and now you know the, the sort of novelty of these things is wearing off and people have experimented and they're getting to understand what works for them and and, and the tools that they like so now i'm i i'm, I'm in, in agreement and of course you know the more outrageous these things get then the more accepting people are of of the sort of standard sort of suite of tools i think yeah and the, even and like stand- woodlandscapes, you know, just, you know, in, in, in the wood, people will go out and they'll take photos of trees or have, you know, trees are always a major component in, you know, naturescapes and wildlife photos. And everybody seemed to want to hit the Monet slider. All right, Monet, boom, everything's like yeah. a, a painting yeah. and it's all so the, the autumn effect comes into play. Yeah. With, yeah. Orton, quite, quite often. Plus Orton, plus Orton, plus Orton. Yeah. It, it's yeah. like, okay, this is, you know, and then they keep the subject as, a literal real you know, that that does not go through the through the filtering process and it you know it just yeah. you know it, it doesn't look authentic you know i mean if you if you're like me and i you know you watch a lot of youtube stuff which i do you know there are there are a lot of guys on there that are doing well, and girls uh, that are that are doing uh, woodland photography and of course they show you the images as they're taking them with a video camera and then you get the final print and you go hang on a minute you know, that's a nice scene, but it didn't look anything like that on your video camera. You know, you—that <laughs> is the Orton Plus button that you've you, yeah. you've used for that, which I have no objection to because, you know, I th- I think it's a it can be really beautiful if you apply it to the right image, and I, it's all about creating art, isn't it? It's not necessarily exactly what you saw with your eyes. It's it's emphasizing those details. I said it's like, you know, makeup, or it's like the portrait photographer emphasizing the stronger features and distracting from the less attractive features 
to give the person that's viewing it the best experience. And I think that is is where that sort of photography is at. And I have no objection to that because it's yeah. it's about finding something visually pleasing. Yeah. And and that's that's what you're trying to create. You know, and and not, normally it's yeah. basic principles too, right? Your subject's lighter than the rest of the frame because it brings interest or your subject's dark or silhouette compared to, you know, so it's just it's drama know, it, or it's emphasis yeah. or it, it depends on Ooh. what you're trying to say with the picture, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I um, but there's standard principles. And I think part of it is a challenge too for s certain people entering wildlife photography because these principles that apply to these photos apply to all types of photography, you know, so it's, it was helped me years ago. I bought a few books on just art, uh, paintings, you know, and uh, so you have like, you know, Japanese silk art, for instance, which is, you know, you could maybe say is a predecessor or the inspiration for high key images versus some of the low key images that would come out of like European Renaissance, you know, and again, it, it, I'm getting very like nerdy here on some of this stuff, but it, it's helped me understand light and, you know, how you can uh, use light to your advantage and how you can produce it even in post-processing. But um, understanding some of these basics, color, color harmony, different types of tones, these all will help you, I think, when you know these principles to yeah. apply digital manipulation to the best uh, to the best of its ability where it's really going to make an image stand out. And it's worth remembering that a lot of these digital techniques, are, uh, you know, have come out of the traditional darkroom anyway. Yeah. Because yeah. don't think that manipulation didn't go on before the age of digital, because it did. <laughs> right. You know, you just didn't see it. You know, you see, and the thing is that it wasn't so accessible to people. You know, to have a darkroom set up and to to understand the processes involved in that was not as accessible as having Photoshop or whatever other digital manipulation software that you have at your disposal and, and can play around with with it yourself. It's yeah. Uh, so it's 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 nothing new. It's it's been going on. It's been going on for years. But I actually think that people should be embracing the positive side of this and experimenting. Particularly if, as with me, what I want to produce is art. I don't really want to produce literal representations of things anymore, unless I'm using that image for a particular purpose where i have to demonstrate you know have to show a particular species that i'm describing or what you know in a literal sense i really don't take those pictures anymore you know it's it's all about the art it's all about looking for the way i can manipulate light to create the you know the, the reaction that i want from from the viewer and and i said i think you know all i'm doing is you know i want to use all the tools that i have at my disposal to be able to create those things mm -hmm. and if that means that part of that process um is digital in the dark room you know with software as opposed to getting it necessarily in camera then i have no problem with that and i you know i think it's it's something to that is going to be a lot of fun to explore and and that's the way i think you know we, we should be looking at this yeah i, I agree and you know whether the outcome is more of the artistic nature or more literal one recommendation i'll give to anybody listening you know be as close as you can get as much as you can in camera don't crop too much you know i call it cropzilla where you have <laughs> if you have an image yeah. and you're cropping out 75 percent of the image and you're trying to work that 
whether you're heavy handed, not heavy, it's still going to, it's not going to work, you know? So always do what you can to fill the frame as you see it and try to minimize your cropping. When it comes to wildlife, you always have to crop for the most part. You have to level things out or there's thing, you know, we, we can't be in a studio and have the animals do what we want and, and set it up. So there has to be some forgiveness around the edges, but try not to make it too much because if you're cropping 50% or more than 50%, uh, even with some of these high res cameras where you can go, you know, 60 megapixel or whatever, it gives you, it gives you more flexibility in that, but uh, you don't want to overcrop because then you're doomed right from the start. You, you've got an image, maybe that's pixelated. You have an image that's, you know, stretched out and whatever type of man manipulation you're going to apply there. It's not yeah, gonna it's going to emphasize the the yeah. frailties of the of, of your basic file, isn't it? I mean, that's, might that's work on Instagram, it. frankly, because you know. Well, it, yeah, it, it will. Part. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> anything other than that, you're going to struggle. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, Josh, that's been a really interesting discussion. I think I hope people have enjoyed it. I mean, I would encourage people to to leave us some comments down below. You know, we we've done a couple of controversial subjects haven't we and covered a couple of those topics yep. so it would be interesting you know to, to know what people think and and get you know every, everybody's views on it so so don't be afraid of leaving us a comment good or bad or indifferent we yeah give us, give us your opinion yeah, five stars yeah. but <laughs> yeah and give us some ratings yeah, yeah give us some ratings so we're working on some some other things as well uh, more episodes to come obviously um and i've been talking to to, to a couple of people a couple of guests that come on and i think you know one of the topics that i want to 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 cover um uh, is photography and mental health so that's going to come you know in the next month or two hopefully um i've also been talking to somebody about coming on and and um, us having a discussion about hide photography so you know all those sorts of things are you know i've got, I've got plenty of ideas so you know if you've enjoyed you know the, the the podcast and the and the discussion then you know do do give us a rating do give us a like and and subscribe or whatever you whatever you do however it works <laughs> i'm never too sure and if there's but, any topics people want to hear about please yeah. let us know feel free yeah drop us a drop us a note i mean in the show notes there will be links to our social media feeds so you can always contact either josh or me um you know via those or drop me an email via the sort of wild art website you know no problem with that um you know be pleased to hear what you you know what you want to you know to, us to discuss because you know be more than happy to you know to to search around some sort of fresh topics that people want to uh you know want to hear a little bit more about so uh yeah do do let us know anyway josh what's next for you uh moving back into my house <laughs> Hopefully in the building work. And, yeah. uh, you know, spring's going to be here soon. So we'll have some early migrants. I've already got red winged blackbirds, robins. They're regional migrants. They're yeah. starting to come back. The ducks are still around, but they'll be leaving, oh, geez, here in a couple of weeks. And we'll start to have warblers coming back in, pine warblers and the like. So we're kind of in a transition time over yeah. the next few weeks. March is a difficult month to shoot. In the Northeast, it's the windiest month of the year, and wind stinks. I think to to a certain extent when it comes to at least photographing birds and some other things. So yeah, it does. It, it ruins the reflections, doesn't it? It does. It ruins so many things. <laughs> uh, so we're in a transition, but I'm looking forward to uh, April for sure. There's going to be a lot of you know turns coming back in, egrets and herons and um, some songbirds and passerines, uh, and hopefully I'll be post-renovation and uh, have my camera out every day or as much as I can. Yeah, we're on, we're on that sort of turning point as well. I can, I always tell that when I, I don't get many of many red poles or um, 
uh, what's the other one a brambling in the garden uh, but when they come in i always know that spring's on its way and i've seen them over the last week or two so and that literally they make a fleeting appearance about this time of the year and then they're gone and then i know spring's arrived so yeah it's been pretty cold here but we've you know we we're, we're sort of through the snowdrop season as it were so all the other things are starting you know to appear now in the in the local woodland so yeah the next next few few weeks are going to be pretty busy i think but I'm starting to see snowdrops. Actually, by the way, I'm assuming that's a, Euro, uh, a European species yeah. of uh, people are planting them here. Interesting. I've seen them, and we have uh, <laughs> crocus. Uh, I'm not an expert, but crocus comes up. Quite, you know, so I've seen yeah. them mixed in with crocus uh, because we've had an unusually warm winter uh, recently. So uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so they are beautiful flowers, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're, 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 they're very good photographic subjects, but this year I haven't pointed a camera at them. It's the first year I haven't taken snowdrops in quite a while. I think sometimes you get to the point where you think, what, what else can I do with them? You know, <laughs> so I've kind of looked at them from every possible. I mean, there's always something new, so I shouldn't really have that attitude. But actually what I, what I was interested in doing with them and, and maybe look at sort of bluebells in the same vein when they start appearing is a sort of multi in-camera exposure mm. techniques and try and play around with that a little bit because yeah i was inspired by what gail did with the dalmatian pelicans actually on lake kakini and i thought oh, yeah. yeah you know you know if if gail's picking up the mantle and running with it then you know i should be doing some <laughs> of this stuff as well so uh, yeah it's a great tool yeah it is yeah so i'm really i'm you know, think I think I ought to explore that a little bit more this year with the spring flowers. So uh, yeah, that that'll be a lot of fun. That'll be a lot of fun. Anyway, Josh, uh, it's been a pleasure as always. Sure thing. And uh, we'll, Great chat. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll think of another topic. I said we've got loads of stuff coming up, so not sure what it'll be next time. But um, you know, we'll we'll let you all know in due course. But uh, <laughs> thanks everybody for listening. I hope you've enjoyed that. As I said, leave us a comment, leave us a rating, all that sort of good stuff. And uh, we'll see you again. Well, we won't see you. <laughs> I guess you won't see us either. You'll hear <laughs> us in the next one. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks all. You have been listening to the Wildlife Photography Podcast. If you have enjoyed the content, then please help us to spread the word by sharing a link on your social media platforms, giving us a like and leaving us a comment. See you all again next time.